Last time in this series, we came to the very important and somewhat difficult topic to talk about, church discipline. How sin was not to remain in the church, but be dealt with through this three-tiered system that Jesus gave us. And at any point, if the offending party were to repent of their sins, they were to be restored and completely forgiven. And now the natural question that Peter's about to ask uh, comes from the understandable angle of, isn't there a limiting principle on this? (laughs) Isn't there a limit to this? How, How far are we supposed to forgive somebody? I mean, after all, we have this phrase in America today, right? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Right, exactly. So, and, and frankly, first century Jewish culture didn't exactly encourage forgiveness either. Back in the first century, if you were a married person you, you, and your wife burnt the toast in the morning, you could be divorced by the afternoon. I'm serious. And funny enough, it was the rabbis encouraging that. Are you kidding me? Well, talk about forgiveness and grace, right? And it's not that much better today if we're honest, though. I mean, we could go around this room and tell story after story of the people who hurt us and the people who withheld forgiveness from us and the hurt that it caused. I'm sure we could have story after story if we really opened it up here. I mean, we don't really practice apologizing in our culture, much less forgiveness in this kind of cold Northeast culture we live in. But it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that Jesus expects better of his called out community called the church. He expects better of us because in short, we have been forgiven so much. We ought to be able to extend that same hand of forgiveness to others. Now, before I even address that topic, I don't want anyone to hear what I'm not saying. Because people twist what forgiveness actually looks like all of the time. Because, look, forgiving someone doesn't mean being taken advantage of. It's a world of difference between those two. Look, if a family member steals from you, yes, you are to forgive them. But I'm also going to change my locks. And if they uh, help me, if they if they even come within walking distance of my house again, now, there's a difference between them. And because the most unloving thing I can do is allow such a person to continue in sin unchallenged. It's not about how they're hurting me. It's I don't want that person to continue going in sin. And also, just because someone says I repent, doesn't always mean that they do. Do they? No, if it's the very word repent means to change your mind, to change your heart, to change your actions. If there's no change, have you really repented? So if they stole or cheated from you, you know, a repented heart will make an attempt to make things right. There'll be a heart that desires to make things right. And yet we err on the side of giving grace and we assume the best of intentions. But if they're clearly not walking in what they're saying. That, that is a completely different category than what we're going to be talking about this morning. So I'm addressing that out front. So with that little disclaimer and background to this text that we've established, let's pick up with Peter's great question in verse 21. As he says, and then Peter came up to him and said to him, Lord, how often will, will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? 
as many as seven times. <laughs> and he's thinking he's going to be, that, that this is very gracious of him, seven times. And frankly, that was more than the culture expected. Back then, uh, the rabbis taught that if you forgave somebody three times, that was considered a forgiving spirit that you would have. So Peter was assuming, you know what? I know Jesus. He keeps calling us to higher grace. I've been with him for about, for almost three years now. It's going to be higher than three, seven. Two and a half times more. How wonderful is that? Well, maybe it appears that way. When you compare it with other people, it appears impressive. However, as Christians, nothing we do is to be compared with other people. We're not to be looking around to each other for who the example is. To be looking upward for who our example is. We compare ourselves to God. Because it's always dangerous to compare yourself with the people around you to see how well that you're doing. It's so easy to justify yourself by saying, you know, yeah, I'm not as good as I should be, but I'm not that guy. The problem is that guy's pointing at somebody and saying, at least I'm not like that guy. I'm pretty sure even Hitler was like, at least I'm not like Stalin. At least I'm not like Mao. That's, That's just the condition of our hearts. You can always find somebody doing worse than you. Rather, but once we compare ourselves with a holy and perfect God, oh, we can't justify our sins anymore, can we? No, in fact, our inadequacies seem to be magnified when we stare upon the face of God. So just as we compare ourselves to God to reveal what real righteousness is, so we must compare ourselves to him to see what real forgiveness looks like. And because of because that is the example that we are to follow, Jesus then says in verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Much higher number there. And clearly that number, along with the rest of the numbers that we're going to be discussing in this beautiful parable about to follow, is that these numbers aren't to be taken literally, but understood as an infinite number of times. Jesus, on another occasion in Luke 17, said to forgive your brother even seven times in a day, so long as they come up to you and say, I repent afterwards. So either that means we're only to forgive somebody for 11 days, or it's meant figuratively to be infinitely, limitlessly. But John, you might say, that seems so crazy. Up to seven times in a day? 77? Limitless? How can you possibly forgive somebody that frequently? And I'm going to be honest with you. Isn't it hard to forgive somebody even one time? Let's be honest with ourselves. The times that you've forgiven someone who's really hurt you. That's hard. That was hard, wasn't it? So, limitlessly? These huge numbers? Are you kidding me? This seems so, so crazy. Well, perhaps we could use an example, a parable perhaps, to remind us of how much we have been forgiven, which is exactly why Jesus gives us this next parable that he begins to unpack in verse 23. 
Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, the master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children so that, and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience on me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. Let's stop there for a second. Just because These are crazy numbers, by the way. Even crazier than it might appear at first. 10,000 was the largest numerical uh, term they had available at that time. You couldn't count higher than 10,000. And the actual phrase here, I'm probably going to mispronounce it, is myrios in the, in the original languages, where we get the term myriad from. So he's saying he comes in with a myriad of debt, which even our modern dictionary defines as a countless or extremely great number. So the, the phrase, Jesus is grasping at the strongest words in the language available at the time to describe how great this man's debt was. And if you're crazy enough to do the math, as your pastor is, and convert these into modern numbers, 10,000 talents of debt is roughly equal to somewhere between 6 and $10 billion. Could you imagine being in, in debt $6 billion? Oh, the weight of that is crushing, isn't it? Just to, just to dwell on that for a moment. So, and, and with the average American salary being somewhere in the ballpark of $60,000 a year, by the math, that would take 100,000 years to pay off. Wow. So the, the, this person's debt is meant to be taken as infinite and unpayable. And as a means of paying off that debt, we see in this text that this person is sold into slavery. Now, slavery was very different back then than it was in the dark ages of American history. It is not the same animal whatsoever. It wasn't race-based. It wasn't in necessarily involuntary, except for extreme cases like this. Or it wasn't even necessarily lifelong. It was something that you would do back then in the first century, um, to finance something by going into slavery and working for a period of time to get it to, to buy something perhaps, or to pay off a debt that you were unable to pay without, without doing so. So that's what's going on here. And seeing how this person owed an incalculable debt, they would have to serve for an incalculable time to pay that off. And that is exactly what our condition is as sinners. The spiritual debt that we have made for ourselves is massive and unpayable. We're not just a little behind on our bills when it comes to our righteousness. We are bankrupt. That's the picture that we're meant to, that is meant to be described here. There's literally no way anyone can say that I will pay off $6 billion or these massive numbers. Which is why, you know, Isaiah himself said that our righteousness are as filthy rags, he says. 
because you are more likely to pay off a multi-billion dollar debt with your spoiled laundry than to be able to pay back our debt to God with our good deeds and our religion and trying to appease him in our own good works. It just can't happen. Which, by the way, this is why people often struggle with the concept of hell. Because they think, oh, why would God send anyone to hell for eternity? That seems like a long time. I'm just a little behind on my bills regarding my righteousness. But you're not. That's not what the Bible describes. We have an infinite debt that you could never pay back. You see, what we don't understand is that the infinite punishment of hell is proportional to the infinite debt that we owe. It seems extreme, but so is our sin. Because our sin is extreme, the punishment owed is extreme. Because the, So therefore, eternal punishment is equal, equal to our infinite debt. And so our only hope, our only prayer is to plead for God's mercy. And the good news this morning is that is literally what the gospel is. That Jesus paid a debt he did not owe so that he would pay my debt that I could not pay. That is the good news of the gospel. What incredible grace of this king to just forgive such an amazing debt. You know, in a few minutes from now, we'll be singing the hymn, Grace Greater Than Our Sin. And for a good reason, because the payment of the sinless, spotless Son of God on the cross was the only payment that could possibly pay for my sins and restore us to the right relationship with God that we can now enjoy. It's not of our own works. It's the acceptance of the very offering of the Son of God himself. The only other infinite part of the equation is the forgiveness and the perfect worth of our Savior on our behalf. And now the only rational response to such unfathomable, amazing grace is to just scream from the top of our lungs, Thank you, Jesus! for what you have done. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for taking my place. Thank you for paying this debt for me. What else can we do but to gather and sing his praises, but to have a grateful heart, to gather together and be reminded of these great promises we have that he has made for us. I mean, that's why for eternity, on the other side in heaven, we will be singing his praises. Because he is worth it. However, there seems to be something wrong with the servant here in this passage. As even in their plea, they assure the king that in time, they will pay you everything, he says. They think that with enough time and enough good deeds, they will, they will somehow pay off this debt. This person does not understand their predicament. They don't understand the grace that is being offered to them. And unfortunately, in our narrative this morning, by their actions that we're about to read, it shows. As we see in verse 28, it says, But when that same servant went out, 
he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So this servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused, and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So much to unpack here. It's, it, it's unclear whether this other servant um, sought this other person or just came upon him. It's, it's unclear which one it is, but neither one speaks well of this initial servant that we're really looking at. Neither attitude is acceptable. And your heart just goes out to this other servant as they beg this person with nearly the same words that this other person had pleaded with just verses before. But yet they, it changes nothing for them. It, it doesn't change their heart whatsoever. And rather than extending the mercy that they were shown, brutality, harshness. And with that being said, some, some people downplay how big this, this debt is of this other servant, this hundred denarii. What, what, what is that? Now, some people say it's like pocket change. It, it really isn't, at least not in my pockets. To be fair with the math, it's something like $12,000. Now, I don't know what your financial situation looks like. But that's a lot of money to me. <laughs> I mean... I won't quite say that's life-changing, but if that kind of money suddenly appears or suddenly disappears from my net worth, that's going to change things. <laughs> that, that's, that's, that, if you write me that check, I'll cash it. My point is that would be hard to simply let go of. If somebody owed you that and you were to say, no thanks, I forgive that, that's significant when you look at the money here, dollar for dollar here especially when we consider what that represents. This is somebody who has hurt you, somebody who owes something against you. However, as Christians, we are able to let go of something that significant. We are. Because you see, it's not about the dollar amount. All of this is about perspective. This whole paragraph is about perspective. You see, because that person you run into who hurt you, who betrayed you, who gossiped about you, who lied about you, who did whatever it is that they did to hurt you. It's still, by the math of this parable, something like 500,000 times smaller than what you've been forgiven. It's about perspective. Yes, I know, I get it. It's, it's still $12,000, you know, if you run by the math. But, and so I'm not one of those guys who is going to say, oh, what that person who did, did to you, oh, that was nothing. Why are you crying about it? Just get over it. It's nothing. No, it's, it was significant. They did hurt you. What they did is not right. It was unjust. But my point is, in Christ you have been forgiven exceedingly more than whatever someone else has done to you. 
We've been forgiven far more than anyone can ever hurt us. And a little trick I've discovered is that with this same idea of perspective, I discover that when I really think about things, when I trace this to its logical conclusions, I usually find myself having genuine pity for the people who have hurt me when you really think about it. Because when I think of the people who've really done horrible things to me in my life, there are people who, and look, Christians do it to each other all the time too, I get that, but most people in my circumstance either didn't know the Lord or have gone through this church discipline process we covered over the last couple of weeks. And when I consider the debt that these people owe to God and that their debt of sin has not been forgiven by all visible ways of measuring, suddenly I'm not so angry. Suddenly I feel less hurt. Suddenly I'm less upset. Because when it hits you, what that person might face if their debt themselves is not forgiven, their situation is quite pitiable. And I'm now focused on and perhaps even find myself praying for the person who hurt me rather than just focused on my own hurt. And furthermore, if the emotional plea isn't enough, we'll try the theological one. Who are you to withhold forgiveness to the one whom God is extending forgiveness to? Are we in the place of God? Am I more holy than he is? Am I a better judge than he is? I think not. So to quickly tie this all together, jumping back into our text in verse 31, how do we, how does the king here respond to this injustice? When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Powerful words. You know, Peter's initial question was, how much a person who's frequently sinning, how much should they be forgiven? How often should we forgive and restore someone who sins? Yet in the end, the way Jesus answers this parable makes it clear that our forgiveness is a reflection of us, not a reflection of the repentant sinner. Yet in the end, I mean, I mean, how much do you understand forgiveness, Peter? Peter, how much do you want to be forgiven? Forgive that person that much whoever it is, whatever they did. I mean, after all, that is the fulfillment of the golden rule, isn't it? To do unto others as we would want to be treated. If we want to be forgiven, we ought to forgive. 
I mean, what do we pray every week here? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. How much are we forgiving our debtors? That might be a sign of how much we understand forgiveness. Might be a sign of how much we're actually going to find forgiveness in our future as well. Isn't it interesting that Jesus seems far more concerned with the well-being of the person who refuses to forgive than with this person who is constantly seeking forgiveness? Isn't that interesting? Jesus, in this parable, seems more concerned with the person who struggles with the ability to find the strength to forgive. Not with the perpetual sinner who is at least repenting constantly, genuinely from the heart. So what does that mean? Does that mean God is going to send you to hell because you can't forgive someone? Is that what this verse is saying? Well, hold on. I don't believe that means that's what this thing says in a legalistic sense. Because I don't want to reduce this down to this is the action, this is the consequence. As if it's works-based. We're not saved or we're not saved by our works. And I don't want to make our own forgiveness the work that saves us. However, if you can't forgive someone, if you absolutely cannot find it in your heart to forgive somebody, that means you either don't understand or don't believe the gospel. And that is what will either save or condemn you. That's what's on trial here. I mean, think about it. A Christian who can't forgive? That's like having a broke financial advisor. It doesn't make sense. What do you have that title for if you're broke? It's like having a woodshop teacher in high school that has missing fingers. Should you really have that title? (laughs) Should that be what you're doing? The Christian who cannot forgive is just as bad. It's a complete oxymoron. It's who we are. It's what we do. As Christians, we forgive. We are to be a forgiving community. Because those of you who have been with us for a while, this chapter is all about community. We're to be a forgiving community. The gospel demands it of us. Time only permits me to scratch the surface of this point, but look, Joseph forgave his brothers who had sold him into slavery. Stephen, the early martyr in the book of Acts, asked God to forgive the very people who were stoning him to death as they were stoning him to death. And what did Jesus say on the cross? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. From the cross, the same gospel that motivated their forgiveness ought to motivate ours. The gospel is what motivates forgiveness, recognizing what Jesus has done for me. And it frees me to extend that same forgiveness to others. With that being said, you know, the world will call the church many things. (laughs) The world will call this community that we have here in South Amboy many things. Many of them being complete misrepresentations of what we believe. We expect that. That happens. But my prayer is that their accusations 
fall on their face for the nonsense that it is when they see who we are, how we live, what we're about, and what we value in our grace and forgiveness, both of the one that we believe and confess and what we show others through our actions. You know, I'm confident that there are people right here in town that would say something like this. You know, there's a lot of things I disagree with those Christians over there on Broadway about. Those presbyteriers or whatever they are. Got a lot I disagree with them about. God, social issues, well, whatever. But you know, they always treat me well. Whenever I run into one of those people, they're kind to me. You know, when I've come to the food pantry or sent people there, they know about my situation, and they still show me grace. They still take care of me despite my faults. There's just something about those people that makes me believe I can't lay my finger on it, but they must be genuine. And I don't know about this Jesus that they keep telling me about that I need to believe, but that Jesus sure seems to be changing them. Perhaps there's hope for me too. That is our hope. That is our goal, and that is the power of the gospel when it is not just proclaimed, but when it is reinforced by how we live as Christians. Thanks be to God. Amen.